Welcome to Stocks Not Sports, the podcast where we try to talk about investment ideas in the same casual way we talk about sports with our acquaintances, work colleagues, friends, and family members. This podcast is brought to you by Infor Financial Group, who is committed to providing innovative, forward-thinking financial advice to all of their clients and customers. I'm Kenrick Sylvester, Principal and Head of Distribution. I have to note the following disclaimer. This podcast is not to be taken as investment advice, and participants or employees of Infor Financial Group may own securities discussed in this podcast. While we love all of our guests, this podcast may contain forward-looking statements, investment opinions, and comments that we do not agree with at all. Listen to what I'm telling you. Yeah. You go find a doctor. Give me Dr. Kildare. Give me Dr. Livingston. Give me Dr. Frankenstein. Just give me a doctor. Go where the, go where the doctors hang out. Where's that? Bars. Is golf course. Golf course. Bar. Okay. Right. Where else? Hospital. Try that too. With us today is Sharif Habib, CEO of Dialogue Health Technologies. Dialogue is a premier digital healthcare and wellness platform here in Canada and a pure play B2B virtual care operator. Dialogue boasts the largest client base versus its Canadian peers, and in addition to compelling financial profile, Dialogue also features exceptionally strong customer KPIs, distribution agreements with five of Canada's top insurance carriers direct relationships with over 2,000 top-tier business customers, and approximately 2.5 million Canadians have access to its virtual care platform. Sharif, welcome to the show, man. Thank you very much for having me. It's our pleasure. So instead of taking a few minutes to tell us about your background, we'd like to do a little speed dating questionnaire where we try to learn a little bit more about you in a few seconds. Are you ready? Let's do it. All right. What high school did you attend? College Beaubois here in Montreal. Okay. Uh, Post-secondary education. I did a Bachelor of Computer Science at Concordia, a Master's in Law at the University of Turin in Italy, um, and an MBA at the Wharton School in Philadelphia. Books or podcasts? I'm a voracious consumer of both, a little bit bit of both every day. Okay. Uh, Beer or wine? Definitely wine. Excellent. Meal kit or order in? I'm more of a restaurant guy, and I think that our baby has beaten the record for the most restaurant outings for any two months <laughs> old in Canada. <laughs> Favorite device, phone, tablet, or smart TV remote control? iPad. Most antiquated tool in your office, something you do not use, a pen, a sticky note, or a calculator? The most antiquated uh, tool in my office is uh, my collection of fountain pens, uh, but I, I do use them. I love uh, I love fountain pens. Okay, still writing with pens. Video games, bubble hockey, or foosball? Definitely foosball. Okay. Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn? Twitter. I love the fact that I can connect and learn from the best in the world uh, in every field. Okay, final question. Music, R&B, hip-hop, Reggae, rock, pop, jazz, country, or classical? Hip-hop and jazz. Okay. Favorite track? Do you have a favorite track? Favorite track? Uh, the Girl from Ibanima by Stan Getz. Okay. All right. So, Sharif, prior to your position as founder and CEO of Dialogue, you've had several senior roles in technology and healthcare, including co-founder of CCM Telecom and CEO of Mcision before its acquisition by Boston Scientific in March 2018. Can you talk about your history in medical technology, what first attracted you to dialogue, and how starting your first business at age 16 helped prepare you for your current role? You know, Steve Jobs famously said, you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking backward. And if you look at my professional path, that's exactly what happens. And, you know, dialogue is really the culmination 
of all my interests in technology, healthcare, hospitality. My first venture uh, when I was 16 was with a friend of mine. We started an IT consulting business. You know, we were hooking up printers and local area networks for small businesses. And a lot of these small businesses were healthcare businesses. So dentists, small doctors' offices, et cetera. That was really my first kind of exposure to healthcare. And I, and I was really fascinated by that. Later on in life, after I finished my business school, I joined up with my uncle, who's a world-renowned uh, liver surgeon. And he had some ideas on how to improve uh, some of the surgeries um, he was doing. And uh, we, I joined his venture, eventually became a CEO of that venture. And we together and, and, you know, invented and well, he invented and I helped commercialize uh, medical devices that were used in the treatment of uh, liver, pancreatic and, and bile duct cancers. Um, and that was an, you know, absolutely amazing experience. And once again, I continuing falling in love in, in, in the business of healthcare. And there was some overlap between your role at Incision and then the founding of Dialogue. What, what happened there? Absolutely. So we had agreed to sell the company uh, to Boston Scientific just as I was starting Dialogue. And during kind of at the 11th hour of the due diligence, we hit a regulatory snag at one of our manufacturing subcontractors in Europe. And it took them about 18 months to fix that issue before the deal could actually go through. So for about 18 months, officially on my LinkedIn, I was doing both. So now you've, you've settled at Dialogue. You're in the midst of creating a, a pretty wonderful business. What was the aha moment that made you believe that this was definitely the right business for you? The real aha moment started crystallizing when our care team literally saved a patient's life in the first few weeks when we started. And I just remember thinking, like, that's it. You know, that's my life's work right here. You know, if we had any doubt that this was going to be a viable business, that that was a raise right there and then. Amazing. Okay, that's interesting. So let's take a, a broader 20,000 foot view. So we at Infor wrote a healthcare IT report last fall during some of our research. One of the really disturbing stats was the shortage of physicians here in Canada. So unfortunately, most doctors do not have the capacity to accept new patients. And as a result, this puts more stress on the system and it feeds into that whole negative feedback loop where patients have a difficult time seeing primary care physicians. Therefore, they do not get diagnosed, they can't get a referral, they can't get a prescription, which then results in further undiagnosed disease. And moreover, even when a patient does go through the trouble of booking an appointment, a recent study from Harvard Medical School calculated that the average doctor's appointment takes 121 minutes. So this two-hour block includes time devoted to the appointment, including travel, waiting, paying, completing the paperwork, and only 20 minutes actually spent with a doctor. So, Shreve, can you discuss how Dialogue helps solve this problem and how you're looking to disrupt primary care as we know it today? You know, Kenrick, this kind of stat really upsets me. <laughs> Wasting 100 minutes on top of a 20-minute appointment is really unacceptable. That's why so many people don't get the care they need when they need it, because they just don't have an extra 100 minutes to kill. And by the way, that's an American stat. So here in Canada, it's significantly worse. So at Dialogue, we ran a survey asking our users how much time they believe they save by using our service. And the average response was 4.2 hours, right? Oh my goodness, that's amazing. You know, that's why, you know, when patients are pulled, they overwhelmingly say that they prefer virtual care to in-person when it's appropriate, of course, virtual care doesn't solve everything. Uh, but the other side of the equation is physicians. As you correctly pointed out, there's a huge shortage of physicians in Canada. And simply taking the, phys the physical medical consults and transforming them to a virtual 
care consult, you know, is great for the patient, but doesn't solve the basic laws of physics that there's not enough physicians for the amount of patients we have. So the number of, of visits doesn't change if you're just changing the medium of that consult. So the reason that dialogue changes that dynamic is that we use a multidisciplinary approach and we've developed technology to bend that cost curve, make us more efficient, and actually see more patients with the same number of physicians. And that's why we really believe that we're a complement to the public healthcare system and that we can really be part of the overall solution. That's interesting. I think all of us have just kind of accepted the long wait times and this whole arduous process as part of the status quo. But can you talk about the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on the primary care model and how virtual care has really stepped to the forefront as a viable or even preferred alternative for patients, depending on the circumstance? Yeah. So I've been looking at surveys, you know, for the last five years since I've been running this business. And the surveys always show that patients have always overwhelmingly preferred virtual for, for most primary care cases. But the limiting factor was really around the physician's reluctance to change their workflows and the regulatory void around virtual care. So COVID-19 has forced everyone to try it because there was no alternative. And I really believe that constraints drive innovation. And this is a perfect example of how the pandemic spurred innovation because of all the constraints it imposed on the healthcare system. You know, if you look at some of the temporary reimbursement codes and what can be done virtually, which wasn't allowed to be reimbursed in the past, any any thoughts on whether or not a lot of these codes will become permanent? And this is sort of the way um, the way forward. We've seen a the pendulum swing from you know no virtual care to almost all virtual care, and, and now it's in a way swinging kind of to the other extreme. And I think the reality and, and the long-term solution will be kind of in between. We're still in a bit, in a little bit of this uh, regulatory vacuum with regards to billing codes and, and reimbursement in, in every in every province. And I think the the provinces haven't decided yet how they're going to deal with this. But as a reminder, you know, Kenrick, to you and and to your listeners, uh, we don't use any of these reimbursement codes, right? So dialogue, you know, a hundred percent of our revenue comes from the subscriptions that we uh, sell to uh, employers and, and insurance carriers. Uh, so we don't use, you know, OHIP or RAMQ or any of these uh, reimbursement codes. So our business is, is really anti-fragile to these regulatory changes that we believe are coming in the next few months. That's interesting and a very good point and a pretty good segue until talking about your business model. So once again, Dialogue is the first pure play B2B virtual care entity Focus on marrying the employer and the group benefit ecosystem. So by connecting the employee and a medical professional in more efficient ways, that saves time, it reduces costs, and improves employee morale and effectiveness. So can you talk a little bit more about your unique B2B business model and more specifically how it drives recurring revenue, strong margins, and lower churn? Look, I mean, ultimately, it's a question of focus, right? So some companies try to be everything to everyone and, you know, they run after B2B and B2C and B2G all at the same time without being the dominant player in any of the segments. And we decided early on that we're going to do one thing, we're going to do it really well, and we're going to be market leaders in our segment. And we specifically chose the B2B model for two reasons. Regulations, because we, we believe that it's just a simple, you know, simply a better business model. So let's kind of uh, untangle e each of these. From a regulatory perspective, 
philosophically, we believe that Canadians fundamentally dislike and resist paying for insured services out of pocket. So when you think of that dynamic, you now have to say, well, am I going to run after the very small part of the population that is comfortable taking out their credit card and pay for healthcare services? Or am I going to find a better segment? And, and we chose a second path. We said, well, employers are desperate for ways to help their employees manage their, their health and well-being. They're absolutely ready to spend but they've been traditionally burning money on all kinds of things that don't work or don't talk to each other or whatever it is. So we decided to focus on B2B because we really love forging these long-term relationships with employers. You mentioned uh, recurring contracts. You know, our business model is a very simple per member, per month recurring contract that we sign with, with these employers. Typically, uh, it's one to three year contracts. And because of those relationships and because, you know, those customers are so satisfied and, and we retain them at a, at a very high degree, almost, a, almost a hundred percent of our customers stay with us in the long term. We're able to reduce our cost of customer acquisition. Uh, we're able to increase the long term value of each client. And in turn, we're able to have much better unit economics, you know, better margins. Okay. Excellent. Let's talk about sort of your, your, your end market. So when I look at Dialog's full-service integrated health platform offering, you have capabilities in primary care and mental health, employee assistance programs, and occupational health and safety. Given that the total addressable market of TAM in Canada for primary care is about $40 billion, mental health $16 billion, and EAP around $1.2 billion, you are poised to address some really large markets. So can you talk about your current addressable markets, what other additional services you plan to add to further increase your TAM, and, and what the view is going forward? As you pointed out, the Canadian TAM of our current services is absolutely immense, right? And when you think about dialogue's potential, it's interesting to think about, you know, about it along several dimensions. The first one is obviously, you know, growing our market share in each of these existing markets. Even if we're the market leader in B2B virtual care, we've only scratched the surface in terms of penetration into that market. Then you can think of time expansion in Canada by going after new services. And the way we think about this is simply going where our customers need us to be. So when we started Dialog, you know, we wanted to be a virtual care company and we built that and we had really no intention or, or no thought of, for example, getting into the EAP space. We got into the EAP space because client after client of ours asked us, have you thought about getting into EAP? We need a better solution. We're not happy with our current provider. And in the beginning, we said no, but at some point you can't ignore the pull of the market. And when, you're, when your own clients are asking you to solve a problem, you have to listen. And you know, just to give you ex examples without revealing of a roadmap, but our clients are telling us that they're seeing a lot of issues around you know, sleep and insomnia. They're seeing you know, chronic disease management, they want to help their employees manage uh, their metabolic health, you know, women's health, all of these issues that employers see their employees struggling with and want to procure solutions to to help them. And that's how we think about our, our TAM is where can we solve more of our clients' issues. 
Can we just dissect your platform a little bit and talk about how it works for a patient looking to connect with a primary care physician? So your technology helps doctors assess a patient's symptoms to speed up diagnosis so they can see more patients. So this leads to faster response time where description to diagnosis is reduced from days to minutes. Can you talk about some of your best-in-class technology, including your AI-driven triage engine and your chatbot that takes less than five minutes to assess a medical condition? Our triage engine was based on a technology we acquired back in 2018. This was a very interesting technology that was developed by four local ER physicians. And the hypothesis at the time was that, you know, if you do a very thorough questionnaire that is automatically led, when you get to the physician, the physician has so much information that they can take a faster and better decision. So that, that was our hypothesis. Where we got this wrong is that, you know, these, these questionnaires ended up being very detail-oriented and very long, and we annoyed some patients. And obviously, our members are our most important uh, constituents. So we went back to the drawing board, and we released in Q1 of this year uh, what we call our light intake uh, triage model. The light intake triage model flips the question on its head. And, and instead of saying, let's do the most rigorous questionnaire up front to reduce the physician effort, now the question that we ask is, what is our best triage decision? Can this problem be seen virtually or no? And if it can be seen virtually, by which type of professional? Is it a nurse? Is it a nurse practitioner? Is it a physician? Is it a specialist? And the number of questions that you need to answer to get to that decision basically goes down from you know 50 questions to three to five questions, right? Because essentially what you're trying to do is just eliminating red flags. Since we've released that, our satisfaction rates have shot through the roof. Um, our NPS, which was already very strong, uh, got even better. So our patients are just delighted by it. Our care team is very happy because now they can quickly uh, determine, you know, where where's the, the best next step for, for the patient. And, you know, sometimes, you know, competitors will say, well, you know, with dialogue, you're, you're going to speak to a chatbot for 20 minutes. And, and that's just no longer true. That's interesting. Okay, I'm going to have to try that up and, and get more familiar with it. But I guess that leads us to the next question in terms of patient-centric healthcare. So what I, what I thought was really interesting about your platform is it's got that automated follow-ups that are supported by report, reporting and analytics. So, you know, we've all been frustrated where you show up to a doctor, even a doctor you know, and they ask you all the same questions and they have no full patient knowledge prior to the repeat visit. So how does all of that, uh, you already mentioned your, your net promoter scores, patient satisfaction. So how is that continuing to improve on the overall uh, patient experience with Dialogue? Our automated follow-ups are, I would say, the thing that patients um, appreciate the most when we read our NPS reviews and, and you know, our, our promoters. One of the, the most cited things they love about the platform are these follow-ups. You know, it, it never happens that you go to the doctor, uh, you bring your kid, and, uh, you know, three three days later, they, they call you and say, hey, how's little Tommy doing? Like, that's just unheard of in the healthcare system. So when we do it, people are absolutely blown away. And then, you you know, you talked about people asking the same question. You know, my, my wife gave birth recently and, and I was just blown away by how many people came into the, into the delivery room and asked the same thing. Like, 
is this your first child? Like, what are you here for? Are you, you know, like what, you know, when are you due? And I was like, man, like, you know, read the chart. Right. And, and that's what we do. And we, we try to solve that. And our purpose-built care platform is the technology that we use on the healthcare side. Um, and it's been purposely built to streamline and deliver that empathy that our patients want. That's amazing. And again, not to belabor the point, but I love how the automated follow-up feature, it, it avoids patients from falling into that follow-up abyss, which I think we've all been in. Specialists supposed to call you back. Are you supposed to call them back? You know, three weeks go by, nothing happens. And you call someone, they call, and it's just, I think it's a, it's an amazing feature for your platform. So I wanted to talk about some strategic partnerships you've, you've announced recently. So last July, Dialog announced a strategic commercial partnership with Sun Life, as well as a $32.7 million equity investment in the company. Last year, you also announced that Canada Life expanded the scope of an existing partnership you had with them. So could you talk a little bit more about those strategic agreements and how Sun Life and Canada Life can help support Dialog's growth going forward? This is one of the things that I'm most proud about um, from a, from a go-to-market perspective. Uh, four out of the f- top five insurance carriers in the country are partners of ours and we have another top 10 carrier um, also as a partner and these you know these give us really important large-scale distribution capabilities across the country and they allow us to reach many more businesses and in turn many more individuals than if we were trying to sign up each of these businesses on on our own both the Sun Life Agreement and the Canada Life Agreement were transformational for our businesses you know let's say in the case of uh, Sun Life you know they embed our product in all of their small business groups. So any business from one to 50 employees that's with Sun Life gets the Dialog app or the Dialog service automatically as part of their plan. And that represents, you know, thousands of businesses across the country, Uh, actually tens of thousands of businesses across the country. And you can just imagine how difficult and expensive it would be for us to go and knock on doors and acquire each of these businesses on their own. On top of that segment, Sun Life also co-sells with us in in larger groups, including some of their big national accounts. So some of our largest clients are common, you know, Sun Life and Dialog clients. It's a similar dynamic with Canada Life, but for a different segment. Canada Life embeds our service in all of their groups of 400 employees and, and less. Um, and then they help us also in some of their, their larger accounts. So these strategic deals have been instrumental for our growth over the last year or so. And I think they give us uh, an incredible moat because these are long-term partnerships. You've mentioned that Sun Life is a direct shareholder in Dialogue. Canada Life is an indirect shareholder because they're a limited partner in one of our other large shareholders. So. These are, you know, multifaceted commercial and equity relationships that are, you know, very difficult to displace. And it's part of part of our uh, market lead- leadership positioning. That's impressive. Listen, having partnerships with four of the top five largest insurers in Canada is, is pretty, pretty impressive. So I guess my question there would be, what, what's wrong with the fifth one? What are they missing? <laughs> <laughs> you, you can't win them all, but, uh, but we're, we're, we're doing our best and I, I don't discount it. Uh, listen, let's tackle a major topic here if possible and talk a little bit more about mental health and employee assistance programs. So again, we at Infor have done a lot of work in the space, and, and you know that. We've spoken about this in the past. And not to rehash a bunch of this old data that uh, everyone seems to be pretty well aware of, but one in five people in Canada will experience a mental health problem or illness in every given year, in any given year, excuse me. 
Mental illness is also a leading cause of disability in Canada, and the economic burden of mental illness is estimated to be over $50 billion per year. And this is all prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. So, Shree, just give us your view on a potential mental health crisis as the next possible pandemic. Yeah, Kenrick, I mean, as, as you said, I, th- I think we've, we've all seen the stats. Um, just looking internally at our numbers, we started seeing an increase in mental health consults in the summer of 2020. And it was, in, in, you know, an increase. It wasn't anything dramatic, but the spike really happened in kind of mid-fall of last year. I know in Quebec, that's when kind of we, we went into pretty strict lockdowns. And it was pretty clear as of that point that this was going to be a major, major issue. I think some of the reasons are understood and and clear to the healthcare or, or mental health community, but some of the reasons are still unclear and, and I and I think we will discover them and learn more about them in the coming months and years. So yeah, I mean it, it is a huge problem. Um, every uh, CHRO or every CEO that I speak with cites mental health as one of their top three concerns in their company. And uh, and we strongly believe we're part of the solution. Uh, so last October, Dialog purchased Optima Global Health to gain entry into employee system programs in that market. As we've discussed in the past, this is a really large opportunity for Dialog. And how can you size up the current EAP market as it exists today? The reason we decided to get into the EAP space was a very strong pull from our clients. So we decided to get into that space and we decided to build our own EAP before we acquired Optima. So we we built our own standalone and reimagined EAP that is fully integrated and works with the rest of our platform and is accessed uh, from the same modern apps um, that we have. The Optima opportunity presented itself. We knew the owners. Um, we had had conversations with them. And I think the owners were looking for a new, they were looking to step away from the business that were ready to retire. And for us, this was a great opportunity to acquire a great business that's been doing this for 27 years, has a great reputation. And we decided that, you know, the Optima team and their, some of their client relationships and distribution relationships and some of the expertise they've built over the last 27 years was extremely valuable. So um, on top of, rolling out and building our own EAP, we decided to add uh, Optima on top of that uh, in order to have the best of both worlds. So the mo- the modern technology and the modern approach uh, with those 27 years of, of experience. Interesting. I wanted to delve a little bit more in, into EAP in general. So that market has some really large players, as you're well aware. And it's interesting how a company like Dialogue can truly disrupt an industry like that. As you know, I had an opportunity to speak with one of your partners, and he emphasized the need for a speedy response time, because I don't think a lot of people are aware of this. When an individual with a mental health issue finds the courage to reach out for help, the platform needs to be able to respond immediately. So under the current analog system, on average, it takes five days to open a file and 15 days to connect with a therapist. So I thought that was shocking. Can you talk about Dialog's response time, your ability to connect with a mental health specialist, have an assessment, and a possible referral in under 24 hours? When we were designing our EAP, we decided that we will ask users and potential clients, what is their number one pain point and focus on that. So hundreds of interviews revealed that what bothers people the most is waiting a couple of weeks to get care. 
So we really focused all of our energy just to solve that issue. So we went out to the market and promised a 24-hour SLA, and that was seen as insane. <laughs> and it was a little bit like, you know, the, the, the 30 minutes were free. Keep the stunts that, that uh, started a dec- decade ago. We said, look, we're, we're going to, we're going to draw that line in the sand and work backwards. And look, I mean, we, we've, we've achieved it. I mean, today, if you use our app, we guarantee that you will speak to the right person and get the care uh, you need and deserve in less than 24 hours. And we were able to do that through a mix of better technology and a better staffing model, not, not a network of professional, but really an owned proprietary network of, of employees. And that allowed us to have this 24-hour promise. And we're really proud of that. We stand behind that guarantee. And it's been a real differentiator. And, and look, I mean, it's not, it's not a secret. It's out in the open. And nobody has been able to, to replicate that yet, because I think that you have to re-architect your whole business from the ground up. It's very different. To, it's very difficult to do with a legacy business. That's interesting that you mentioned your personnel. I think another interesting distinguishing feature, not only we've talked about your technology, but your personnel do set you apart in terms of your EAP platform. Can you talk about how you recruit your people? You have access through Optima to a 30,000 member network. How do you get, how do you decide how those people come onto the uh, dialogue platform? The traditional model is that an EAP would go throughout the country and sign up a network of mental health professionals that also see patients from other EAPs. They also see their own patients. It's just a a list of professionals that if you have somebody in their area, we will buy a consult from them. And we think it's a terrible model because you really don't control the quality. You know, a lot of these folks who are very good also have other priorities when they have a choice between seeing their own patient at their full price or seeing a a competitor's patient at a steep, steeply discounted rate, they will always prioritize their own clients. So we said that the best way to get out of this vicious circle is to really hire and train and employ our own professionals. And that means that you know, instead of bragging about how many thousands of uh, distributed, uh, you know, in-network professionals that we have, we only have a hundred or a couple of hundred uh, full-time employees that are seeing only our patients, nobody else. They're paid on a salary. And that drastically improves the quality of the service we deliver. And it also drastically cuts down the wait times. But it's only possible when you employ these folks. And it's only possible when you shift to a virtual solution, right? Because when you have a physical solution, it means that you have to match the patient with a professional that works, you know, within a reasonable driving distance from where the the patient is. And that means that we're able to match our users with the best professional, as opposed to the professional that has an opening in their schedule and that happens to be close to them. Let's switch to another vertical. In May, Dialogue announced the acquisition of Australian-based eHub Health, a leader in internet-based cognitive behavioral therapy, or ICBT. eHub Health has a 15-year history and approximately 1.4 million global users. But can you describe why you made that acquisition and how ICBT will be part of Dialogue's growth strategy going forward? Yeah, let me step, take a step back and answer why ICBT. We have a mental health program that delivers extremely strong results, but that program is 100% provider-led. This means that every time uh, one of our members comes to Dialog to use that program, 
we pair them with a mental health specialist. As you know, these mental health specialists are uh, very specialized, they're scarce, and they're expensive. And that means that that program is a premium program and is not accessible to every employer, especially employers that are a little bit more cost conscious or in or in, you know lower margin industries, et cetera. You know, there was, there was a big portion of our customers that said, hey, we need a lower cost mental health program because we believe in mental health. We need a solution for it, but we can't pay for your regular regular price program. This was kind of the genesis and we started uh, looking at what, what what could be a solution. And we decided that we will get into the ICBT space. ICBT is extremely interesting because it's it's technology led. So you're really you're you're really able to decrease the cost of providing this service, and you're really able to make it available to a, a much larger segment of the population. And we said, do we do we build one? Do we partner with someone, or 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 do we buy? An existing program and we looked all over the world and and one of the things that we realized is that a lot of these icbt programs are not based on real hard scientific data and there's little very little research that backs some of these programs and we essentially found the pioneer in in icbt and this is a team in australia that has been working on this problem for over 15 years it is the most published and researched um, ICBT program in the world. The safety and efficacy of this program has been con- confirmed by several, you know, double-blind, randomly controlled uh, trials uh, that are independent of the team. There are teams at Harvard, Cambridge, CAMH that have studied and and, and confirmed the validity of this program. So we first approach uh, uh, Kylie and Anthony at uh, eHub Health about. Uh, a partnership and about licensing some of their content to include in our apps. And as the discussion progressed, we realized that these folks are unbelievably mission driven. And we said, hey, like we need to bring these folks inside of our company. We need, we need to own this asset. This will be very strategic uh, to us going forward. It evolved into an acquisition discussion. And, and you'll see a pattern here, right? Like this was a little bit similar to how I described the Optima acquisition. This is again, you know, a, a great team that's been doing this for decades. Uh, they've built their reputation. And, you know, we just felt, you know, they, they had this, you know, missionary and not mercenary approach to what they're building. So that's really how uh, eHub uh, came about. So obviously, from where I sit, Dialog is a really high growth company. And I remember last year, there was an article in the paper suggesting that you added 600 new employees in 100 days. So experience suggests that when companies try to scale and optimize at the same time, they usually fail. So how do you manage that growth? And how do you plan to optimize the business as you continue to scale? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I've always uh, thought that quality and quantity were, were, were opposites and you couldn't do both at the same time, and you had to do one and, and then focus on the other. In healthcare, you can do that, right? In, in healthcare, qu- quality is not uh, negotiable. Really, really, really proud uh, of the team. They really rose to the occasion. They accomplished this very rare feat of increasing the quality while increasing the quantity that I, I didn't think was possible, but I was proven wrong by my own team, and I'm really proud of them. Kudos. That's uh, that's actually very impressive. I, I want to talk a little bit more about Dialog's numbers. So let's talk a little bit more about your overall business 
and and some of the things that look pretty interesting in terms of a really high growth company. I know we've we've mentioned that a couple of times. So last year, Dialogue achieved almost 190% organic revenue growth, and it's currently generating over 60 million in ARR with 99% recurring or reoccurring revenues. With the acquisition acquisition of Optima in EAP and eHub Health in ICBT. We can assume that Dialogue can continue to be a high-growth company going forward. So without making any forward-looking statements, how should we think about growth in your various verticals? And how should margins, especially at Optima, expand over time as you convert to a PMPM model? In terms of growth, you know, revenue growth is is really our number one priority. So we have a clear three-pronged growth strategy. Uh, you know, number one is land and expand. Number two is new services. And number three is international expansion. And we're going to continue to execute on each of those to continue our growth, you know, both organically and through selective M&A. We're going to be very careful and disciplined in our M&A strategy. Our growth profile does not depend on M&A. I think we have a lot of organic opportunities in front of us that we're executing on. And, you know, as you mentioned, uh, the acquisition of Optima uh, was a really important one for us. It made us we kind of um, went from a newcomer, unknown player in the space to a third EAP provider in the country. And we really saw this opportunity to acquire traditional business and use our technology and integrate it to the uh, our healthcare platform. And we're migrating all of their customers to a higher margin customer base. So we're really, you know, it's really the playbook of taking a low margin traditional business and tech enabling it and bringing all of these customers to a place that closely resembles our target gross margins, which is in the, in, you know, in the, in the mid forties. So just to follow up today, the company has made five acquisitions. So how should listeners think about if you could give us sort of an idea of your mix between M&A and organic growth over the next few years? So we've acquired uh, five businesses, uh, DXA, Botfront, Argument, Optima, and eHub. And out of these five, only Optima really came with any significant revenue. The others were acquisitions that added very interesting technologies that we needed in our stack or very interesting team members um, or allowed us to expand uh, in, in, in a new service or a new country. So we've really been thinking about M&A not as a, uh, as a way to buy growth, but as a way to enhance our technology and, and, and our service offering and, and getting the expertise that, you know, sometimes, you know, like, like an eHub or, or, or Optima's case, you know, would take decades to, to build. So we're going to continue being super disciplined. We're going to be very careful about the evaluation and the multiples we pay. You know, we don't want to dilute our, our shareholders, you know, really focus on owners that are missionaries versus mercenaries that really care about the business and will stay uh, with us for a, for a long time. We, we don't need M&A to grow, but we will use M&A selectively uh, when we need to add interesting pieces of technology, uh, people, services, or markets to our stack. Interesting. I like that missionaries versus mercenaries. That actually speaks volumes, that one, that one phrase. Can we talk about dialogue as an investment? So dialogue shares are down from the highs in early April as the entire healthcare IT sector has come under pressure. I mean, U.S. Bellwether Teladoc is down over 45% from the highs earlier this year. But uh, Wall Street analysts are still expecting their revenues to double year over year in 2021. So according to street expectations, analysts are projecting that Dialog will also double its revenues in 2021 and add another 40 to 50% revenue growth, growth in fiscal 2022. 
My assumption is that the healthcare IT stocks are under pressure as COVID vaccine programs are allowing things to open back up across the globe. However, isn't the genie already out of the bottle with respect to virtual care? I mean, even if COVID is in the rearview mirror, which I don't think it is, I don't think that people want to go back to the old way of doing things with respect to the whole hamster wheel that was our old healthcare system. So if virtual care is here to stay, how should investors think about your continued growth trajectory as you expand your client base and add more healthcare applications to the platform? Yeah. So, so first I will say that the genie is 100% out of the bottle with virtual <laughs> care. Um, there was a recent McKinsey study that shows that telehealth is stabilizing at 38 times uh, pre-COVID levels. So in the U.S., this means 13 to 17% across all specialties when it was really under 1% before the pandemic. And in Canada, we are seeing similar trends. As I mentioned, the pendulum like swung from one extreme of no virtual care to all virtual care. It's going to stabilize somewhere in, in the middle. But you really have to remember that at Dialog, we are not selling doctor visits, right? So we don't earn a fee per consult. We are selling a subscription to an integrated health platform to employers and these employers still need to support the, their employees' well, well-being post-pandemic. A lot of the, the U.S. names that uh, we are compared to earn fees per consult. So they're suffering from those low utilization numbers, whereas for us, that's really not, not a factor. So we're really focused on executing, and we believe that the market will give us credit for that. And we want to attract long-term patient investors who understand that this is about disrupting one of the biggest TAMs in each market around the world. You know, on top of the dollars and, and cents, this is a, a play that impacts the lives of millions of people. You know, long-term patient investors really care about that. That's great, man. So I wanted to shift to a question about career adversity. What was your get him off the field moment? You know, the moment you made a big mistake and everyone wants you to shoulder the blame. What was your moment and how did you recover? <laughs> This one's a little bit embarrassing. So early in my career at uh, my first job, my manager asked me to send an email BCCing about 250 customers about, I don't, I don't really remember about what. And I made a mistake and put them all in the two field instead of the BCC field. And uh, <laughs> yeah, brutal. So I, uh, I realized my mistake when people started replying to all, you know, I was absolutely mortified <laughs> and, I, and I'll never forget that knot in my stomach. And look, I'm, I'm glad that I made the mistake early in my career. Now I am a stickler for email etiquette and I triple check every, <laughs> every email that we sent to uh, since that happened. So that, that's, my, uh, that's my anecdote. Sadly, I think you're doing okay because I would bet that anyone listening to this has done that exact same thing and made that error. So And cringing. Uh, oh, yes. And remembering all the, <laughs> the, the hundreds of reply alls and, hey, I didn't know who was your customer. And, hey, I didn't know. Anyway, I could, clearly I've done that myself. So um, listen, th thank you, Sharif. Um, what I've learned today is that virtual care is, is here to stay. Uh, Dialogue is expanding its TAM with new customers, new services, a land and expand revenue growth strategy. And mental health, uh, sadly, will be the next pandemic, but it looks like Dialogue's in a really good position with its EAP and ICBT pro uh, programs to help uh, employers um, deal with this and, and treat their employees. Is there anything else that you would say to complete the picture as a public company? And how should investors think about Dialogue as an investment? Yeah, look, I mean, ultimately, a, a bet on Dialogue is a bet on our ability to continue changing healthcare for the better for millions of people. So we have the momentum, the strategy, the team, and the resources to do this. 
And I don't have a single doubt in my mind that we'll deliver on that vision in the month and years to come. And we're going to continue executing like we have for the last five years. Um, and I think investors um, who join us on this mission will be uh, really rewarded. That's great. Final question before I let you go. If you could own and run a sports organization, which one would it be and why? Well, all right. So since you're giving me the opportunity to dream, I'll dream really big here. I would love to own an America's Cup team. And for those who are not familiar with that competition, it's a sailing race held every four years in a diff different location around the world. And it's actually the oldest competition in sports history. It's really an unbelievable com combination of technology, human achievement, and, and, you know, just harnessing the power of nature. Uh, and it's really, you know, I'm really fascinated by that sport. And uh, if I had to dream, I would say uh, I'd, I'd love to own one of those teams. And there's an incredible book that I would really recommend that uh, you can It's called The Billionaire and the Mechanic. And it talks about how Larry Ellison, the CEO of Oracle, got into that sport, challenging, you know, the stuffy old boys, sailors and uh, and and his team, the Oracle team won the cup in 2013. And it is considered to be the least likely comeback in all of sports history. So they, they recovered from the worst odds of any team in any sport ever uh, to win that cup. And it was an absolutely amazing uh, comeback and win. And, 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 you know, it was just, I was just exhilarating. That's amazing. I did a little bit of research. Clearly, I'm, I'm a neophyte when it comes to the America's Cup. But I did read that Larry Ellison was rumored to spend about $200 million. <laughs> on that. Yeah. And they're, they're big numbers. I mean, I know um, 2017, Team New Zealand spent about 50 million. And uh, in 2021, the entry fee alone is just 2 million per team. But um, I wanted to ask you, uh, as an experienced America's Cup veteran, is, is it more like Formula One when you talk about the designers um, versus drivers or skippers in terms of performance? Like, how should we think about it? It is analogous to, to Formula One, where you're, you know, you're combining you know, you're combining a team with a, a piece of machinery, all the technology. So there's, a, there's a lot of parallels. And actually, as I was thinking, you know, Larry Ellison was accused of throwing money at the problem and, and in a way kind of, the, you know, debasing the sport a little bit. But, you know, I, I disagree. I mean, I, I think he showed a lot of ingenuity and he took the Silicon Valley tech way to a old stuffy uh, sport and I, I think he transformed it for the better and look I mean when you look at the boats now you know they're almost unre you know you, it, it doesn't look like a sail boat anymore it looks like a plane that's hovering above the water and yeah he's, he's really taken the, the sport for forward and look I mean T Team New Zealand has nothing to complain about they, they won this year and they had a great run so it's been it's been really fun to watch them and it's interesting, and, and just to be consistent with the, with the podcast, the economics of the sport have grown exponentially. So I was just checking out, right? The 36th America Cup uh, was in New Zealand, most viewed ever with global TV and live streaming audience of 941 million people and gross media value of 833 million euros. And that's 3.2 times the size of the last one held in 2017. So obviously there's a lot of money there. It's obviously a lot of technology goes into it. I'm going to try and check it out now that uh, now that we've had this discussion. One thing I did want to mention was in the very first race, you know all about this, uh, Commodore John Cox Stevens, 1851, uh, makes his yacht, takes it to England to make some money competing in yachting regattas and match races, ends up winning finishing eight minutes ahead of the closest rival. And apparently, Queen Victoria asked who finished second. And the famous quote was, ah, your majesty, there is no second. 
So sadly, <laughs> sadly, the same could be said for the English national football team, who after a spectacular Euro 2020 oh, tournament, lost the final to the, to the Azzurri in penalty kicks. So that was sad. I know it might be too soon, but congrats to the Italians. They, they played extremely well. And unfortunately, there is no second in these things. But listen, Sharif, it's been amazing uh, chatting with you. It's been great to hear more about Dialogue and um, your plans for the future. So thank you so much for being on our podcast. We're very excited for you and your company, and we just want to wish you continued success and the best of luck with your business. Thank you very much, Enrique. It was really fun to do this with you. Thanks for listening to the show. If you enjoyed the podcast, check your app now to make sure that you've subscribed so that you don't miss an episode. I'm Kenrick Sylvester, and I'll see you next time. Problems and personal issues, stories that I make your eyes tear and wet tissue. It's true, I'm mad like the rapper. I'm so upset I gotta put it up in my rap before I snap her after. The things I've seen from Atlanta to Queens to the main streets of Brooklyn when I was a teen. Back and forth to the islands, screamed when I left, but adapted. And still my dreams haven't left. I only hung with the crack kids, weaned out the rest. Me and the roughest roughnecks went chest to chest. Now my best friends locked up north, I won't rest till I let him live his dream through me and I confess that even